Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about the plants that I have found interest in this week as I've been gardening and general musings about them and topics related. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I have learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. It's the beginning of June here and in Maine, and the lupins are in full bloom. And I feel like it's a week or two earlier than usual, but it is beautiful. And it is just so quintessential coast of Maine right now, driving around and just seeing fields of lupins, roadsides covered in lupins, and ocean views with lupins and lilacs and daisies and it's just wildflower bonanza and the lupins are in the legume family and it's good to know the plant families when you're learning about plants you can learn a lot about a whole bunch of plants if you get to know the basics about the family And you can also know um, what plants you generally have to be cautious around, like what families might have some poisonous plants in it or what families are totally safe. And so that takes some educating and there are um, some great resources out there. Botany in a Day, the author, I want to say Thomas Elpel, is the author and he has a couple great books he also has Shinoa's Quest which is for children but I find it also like really good for adults too as a general overview of plant families and things to look at in ways to identify them so the lupin is in the legume family same as beans and peas and clover 
And the legume family you is one that you just have to be a little cautious with because, again, it has some amazing food and medicinal plants in it. But then it also can have some plants that are poisonous um, or have toxicity to them. And lupins are one of those plants that, you know, in the past, maybe people have used it as food or tea, This, um, but mostly it's considered a toxic plant and not one that I use medicinally or edible-wise. I personally just enjoy looking at it. I think of it as a very weedy plant once lupin gets established in an area they produce a lot of seeds and the seeds can stay viable in the ground for a long time so once you have lupin it's hard to totally get rid of it so it is a little bit invasive i would say the peterson's field guide to medicinal plants and herbs is a great book as well if you are learning about medicinal plants and you just uh, the way i first learned about medicinal plants is i carried my peterson field guide with me wherever i went for walks and if there was a plant that called out to me or i found it of interest and i didn't know it then i would look it up in the book and try to find it and i find that they have um, some very general information in here. It's written by Stephen Foster and James Duke, two really well-known and respected herbalists. But they also are super, super cautious, so which is nice with a field guide. So if there's any chance of um, the plant being toxic or poisonous, it'll have a skull and crossbones, or if it cause potentially causes any type of dermatitis or skin irritations then they won't have like a little hand with a rash on it and a caution triangle with an exclamation point in it so but with the wild lupin entry in this book there is a skull and crossbones and they say the uses and i find this book often does traditional native american uses and so they say, um, uses American Indians drank cold leaf tea to treat nausea and internal hemorrhaging. A fodder used to fatten horses and make them, quote, spirited and full of fire, unquote. Warning, they say, seeds are poisonous. Some lupins are toxic, others are not. Even botanists may have difficulty distinguishing between the toxic and non-toxic species, which is interesting because, and good to know, um, because in a lot of other texts or even online, you might find, you know, oh, lupin is edible. Um, all parts of the plant have been used for edible reasons and medicinal reasons in the past, but it's really one just, I don't know, I avoid I have seen a lot of reference to people uh, eating the seeds. But then again, in the Peterson Field book, this, they say the seeds are toxic. I also hear that the seeds are very bitter and you have to like boil them for a long time repeatedly and then like pulverize them, I think is what people used to do. But again, I would just kind of just enjoy lupin for their beauty. Uh, also, it's known to be 
um, toxic for to sheep especially and is really dangerous for them to eat. And the, the name lupin is thought to, to be derived from the word lupus, which uh, means wolf. And supposedly, the, what I've seen people say is that it was called that because it would rob the soil of, thought to be rob the soil of nutrients. Although I think it's interesting because wolves are also enemies of sheep. And so in my mind, I wonder if there's a, some sort of a reasoning there as well. But in reality, lupin, being of the legume family, is actually nitrogen fixing, which means it has the ability to bring more nitrogen into the soil, like all legumes. And so the legume family basically has a symbiotic relationship with a certain type or types of soil bacteria that are able to take nitrogen gases from the air and then basically trade that nitrogen um, and turn it into a different form. And I think it's actually ammonia nitrate or something that they can change it into. And the plants form these root nodules. So they're like little, they look like little nuts or little balls attached to the roots and that stores the nitrogen. So when I was in um, agriculture school at Evergreen, State College, what I remember learning is that even though the plants are storing the nitrogen, they don't actually release the nitrogen until they are tilled into the soil. So you could have, you know, red clover or oftentimes crimson clover is used as a cover crop, as a nitrogen fixing cover crop. Uh, but the nitrogen actually isn't released into the soil until that crop is tilled in and then the nitrogen can get released from these um, little root nodules. So yes, in some ways the lupin is possibly nitrogen fixing, but I think that the plant actually might have to die to, to do that. And they actually have quite a large taproot. Um, and I actually haven't noticed the nodules on the taproot of the lupin because trust me, I have weeded it out of many a gardens. Lupin, it's really beneficial if you live near some to really explore the flower of lupin and really look at it in detail because it's a nice large legume flower. And that's how plant families are organized is by basically by their flower. They can have very different leaves, like if you think of a lupin and a red clover, very different leaves. But if you look at each individual flower, they look very, very similar. Astragalus is another um, common herb in the legume family. That The red clover, those balls of, it looks like maybe one flower, but if you look at it really closely, it's actually lots and lots of individual flowers. And, you know, if you were ever a child or even an adult that enjoys sucking the nectar out of the flower of the red clover, you know you need to pick each individual small flower to enjoy that nectar instead of just chomping on the large flower head. Red clover is also blooming right now and I love letting red clover go. Um, in my yard I find that often actually the deer will eat it but if it's up close to the house or in gardens, I will let it grow. 
and red clover is a wonderful medicinal plant. I like to consume it as a nourishing herbal infusion where I use the dried flower heads and I weigh out uh, an ounce by weight and I put it in a quart jar, fill it with boiling water, let it sit for four to eight hours and strain it out. When you weigh out that ounce of dried red clover flowers, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is so much plant material. It's filling up my whole jar. Um, But then after it soaks and then you strain it out and you squeeze out all that plant material, you actually realize it's a very small amount of plant material that actually has a lot of air space to it. And that's why it's important to be making the infusion strength of a red clover if you're really looking to get the benefits from it. Because if you're just adding a small amount to tea, you know, you might add three or four flower heads or something, and that's really very, very minimal amount of plant material. So you want this is a food-like herb, it's a legume, and it has as many benefits as eating beans. Uh, but without the flatulence side of things. And not only that, but red clover, but all, all beans, all the seeds of beans have phytosterols, which uh, the bacteria in our gut, our gut flora, is able to turn into uh, chemicals that mimic our own body's estrogen and that can bind to our receptor sites. So a lot of times people say, oh, you know, red clover contains estrogen or red clover contains what's called phytoestrogen, phyto being plant. But really, it, it all, from my understanding, all roots, all leaves and all seeds have phytosterols. And these are components that our microbiome, microbiota in our gut can take these components from the plants and then make hormones Um, that react with our body from them. So the more that you can get into your system, the better because these forms of estrogen that, that our body makes from the red clover has a modulating effect on our estrogen levels where it will bind with our receptor sites, but it's not a strong bind. So it kind of like binds but will let go as well and so it could block some more dangerous forms of estrogen including the xenoestrogens from our environment which have very strong estrogenic effects um, and can actually be cancer fueling and then we make we make um, as women we make I think 30 different types of estrogens And there's one estrogen, estradiol, that we make um, at ovulation, so that one day a month. And that also can be a cancer-fueling hormone. And so the more of these phytoestrogens that we can utilize in our body, the less effects these harsher estrogens will have. But if we don't have enough estrogens in our body, and we want to, we're looking for more of an estrogenic effect, then these quote-unquote phytoestrogens can help our body to have more of an estrogenic effect, and that is the modulating benefit there. 
red clover is very uh, fertility enhancing, mineral rich, bone building, hormone modulating, and so many other benefits to it. Anti-inflammatory. And I like to drink uh, one to two quarts of infusion uh, a week. There's interesting things about red clover that it has coumarin in it, which is a blood thinner, um, similar to the drug coumadin, which is based on these plant chemicals. However, from my understanding, there's numerous amount of coumarins, plant coumarins that have various effects on the body. Some are blood thinning, some are blood clotting, um, and some don't have an effect on the blood at all. And red clover happens to have like five of these different coumarins. One of them is blood thinning. One of them is more um, blood clotting. And then three of them don't have any effect on the blood. So uh, again, that allows for the modulating effect. And that's why herbs are so amazing because they are so diverse in their plant chemistry that they can have much more of a modulating effect, especially when we consume them in their whole forms instead of like a standardized extract or something like that where, you know, we're getting a variety of plant chemistry that our body can then pick and choose from what it needs. A couple other plants that I actually had to uh, weed out of uh, some gardens this week One was chickweed, and the other is shepherd's purse. Both of these, um, I believe, are annual plants, so they have a pretty quick life cycle, and they produce a lot of seeds, And but they're both wonderfully medicinal, and I don't have them on my property so much, but and in my gardens, and so whenever I am taking them out of other people's gardens, I like to bring them to my, or this is what I did recent this time around, is I brought a bunch of the chickweed and a bunch of the shepherd's purse to my house, and I just put the dead plants kind of in an area that I wouldn't mind if they grew. And now they're not going to grow from the plant itself. The plant, I did have to, unfortunately, kill the plant. And I didn't want to make medicine from it because I don't know exactly what my client's my landscape clients are necessarily using in their gardens, but I do want to promote them growing in my gardens. So I think oftentimes with annual plants, they will, even if you kill them, they will finish out ripening their seeds and dropping their seeds. So, and with chickweed, it's really easy to harvest chickweed seeds. You can, um, if you harvest the plant when it's blooming and starting to go to seed, you can harvest the whole plant and put it in a brown paper bag to dry. And then the brown bag in a day or a week will, at the end, once the plant is all dried, at the base of the brown paper bag, it will just be full of chickweed seeds. And you can spread those. So chickweed um, is a great edible. You could, A famous recipe is chickweed pesto. It tastes very mild and it's you know very it's very similar to spinach I feel like in flavor it's a little stringier the stems are a little stringy so that's what's nice about making a pesto with it 
And oftentimes people will also make tincture with chickweed. And what I mostly know and think of with a chicker, uh, a tincture of chickweed is that it's a discutient, which basically means it breaks up um, fatty tumors and cysts and helps them to be redispersed into the body. So things like it's very commonly used <clears throat> for people who have ovarian cysts to help break those up or sebaceous um, cysts in their, in their skin. It's very helpful for helping to break those up and eliminate those. And then the shepherd's purse, what I mostly know shepherd's purse as is to stop bleeding. And I find it is probably most commonly useful when you make a tincture from the fresh plant material. And then especially when uh, women who are in menopause and might have a lot of menstrual flooding, that the shepherd's purse, if taken, you know, uh, acutely and and uh, regularly, you know, in the moment, but like every five to 10 minutes or so, it can really help to like slow the flooding um, or excess blood. And then I also know of midwives carrying it with them in case there's excess bleeding after giving birth. It can also be helped to use to staunch the blood flow of from that as well. So hopefully those plants will take in my garden. Another plant that I um, was working with this week is Solomon's Seal, and it's beautiful right now. It's all blooming, and it's a beautiful garden plant to grow. It likes to grow in shade, and it has these beautiful little bell, white bell-shaped flowers that hang down from the leaf nodes, and it arches, and it's, oh, it's just lovely. It's a, and, um, it's a perennial, it's a, it likes kind of woodlands, it's native place where it likes to grow is in the woodlands. <clears throat> and it's one of these medicinal plants that could easily be endangered or over harvested because again, it's the root, the tuber that is harvested. And, um, and it is also even harvested as a food crop. But again, it takes it a long time to grow a nice size tuber. And then it might, you know, you just have to really be aware of where you're harvesting it from. And I would never harvest it from the wild. Never, ever, ever. But I would grow it. And I think it's a really great plant to incorporate into any shade garden. So I highly recommend growing it. And... I was, and then, you know, it's easy to transplant. So I was doing some transplanting for a woman who's moving a garden and needed to move the Solomon seal to a different location. And when you look at the tubers, it's really interesting and how it's got its name is every year, you know, the stem will grow up from the end of the tuber from where it grew. The amount of the tuber that grew last year the stem of this year will grow from and then the new tuber will grow out continue to grow out from where that stem is and the previous years where the previous year stem grew there's now like a round almost scar on top of the tuber and it looks like a seal like those um, wax seals that you that you know you picture 
people in castles melting wax and pressing their emblem on it. So supposedly it's um, King Solomon's seal is what that, how it got its name. And I mostly hear about Solomon's seal other than it being a food, which I've never eaten it per se, but mostly hear about it for uh, joint repair and dry and creaky joints. Um, Again, there's definitely a doctrine of signatures here if you want to look at plants, which basically means the way that a plant looks might give us hints as to how it could benefit our own health. Um, And it has, you know, joints along the stem and where the leaves come out and where the flowers come down. It's a very kind of jointed looking stem and it can help with healing joints. And so when I injured my knee last summer, I did purchase some uh, grown and harvested, you know, farmed and harvested Solomon seal tincture and infused oil. And the infused oil just felt very soothing and demulcent on my knee. And I, I went through, you know, two ounces of oil and two ounces of tincture. I think my injury was a little bit more than what could be helped with the Solomon seal though. Um, but it was an interesting experiment and just a plant that I absolutely love. So stay tuned. I have a few more plants that I want to talk about and a fun chive flower vinegar recipe for you. Another plant that's uh, growing and ready to be harvested in my garden right now is comfrey. And comfrey is another plant that I love to make the nourishing herbal infusions with. And it's only with the aerial tops of the plant that I ingest internally, not the root. The root is for external use only. And as long as the the comfrey plant Um, is tall and has like purplish to blue flowers. I believe it is safe for internal consumption. It has been cultivated. It's a cultivated variety versus the wild variety of comfrey, which is shorter and has yellow flowers and actually produces seeds. But these hybridized versions, these um, blue and purple flowered comfreys don't actually produce seed. I like to harvest them when they are in bloom, when they're starting to bloom and they have a nice long stalk and big leaves that kind of come up along the stalk and at the base of the plant. And the way I harvest it is I um, cut it, cut the stalk at the base and the stalk will have some nice leaves on it and it will have some flowers. And then I'll hang each individual stalk to dry. So comfrey is a plant that is very high in protein, which is awesome for nourishing herbal infusions. It's also very high in mineral content. And it also has um, allantoin in it, which is a, a healthy cell proliferant, which makes it really beneficial for healing any sort of connective tissue. 
and the allantoin tends to be concentrated in the harder parts of the plant, so the stem and the root, which is why we want to harvest the stem um, and not only the leaves of comfrey, because again, we aren't ingesting the roots, so, but we can ingest the stem. And the comfrey, um, because it's so protein rich, it bruises, it can bruise easily. So you don't want to like bang it around a lot or throw it around. You know, you just want to be very gentle when processing it and you don't want to pile a bunch on top of each other. And then you want to hang them stalks individually. I usually use, um, like a wooden clothes rack and then I just, this, where the leaf comes off of the stalk it's a perfect little v shape and i usually just will hang that where that v is um, on the wooden drying rack until and you want to make sure that the stalk is very dry before you put it away and then i make a nourishing herbal infusions with the comfrey so i weigh out one ounce of the plant material just like the red clover blossoms although it takes a lot less plant material of comfrey to make an ounce. It's a lot heavier of a plant. And uh, put it in a quart jar, cover it with boiling water, let it sit four to eight hours, strain it out, squeeze out all that plant material. And it makes a very dark, very rich, slightly milky flavor of a tea. It has like both astringency and demulcency to it. Um, so it's, and it's just very uh, thick and rich drink. And again, just very healing for all connective tissue and all mucous membranes in the body. And then the other plant that I've seen growing recently this week is uh, stinging nettle. And I just noticed it on one of my client's properties who used to have a lot of sheep and it obviously is growing in this one patch that I assume is where there she maybe used to pile manure or straw or it's just kind of in this one circular area and her nettle was at perfect harvest height if you were to harvest it um, either as um, to boil it into a soup or if you wanted to hang it to dry and again the nettle is also very high in protein um, and is great for nourishing herbal infusions as well. Um, but again, it, these really high protein rich plants need to be dried with lots of air space. So again, hung one stem at a time instead of in bunches and clumps, ideally, because they can rot a lot easier because that protein is going to be prone to rotting. So the nettle in my yard, in my, which is being kind of overtaken by forsythia and blackberries, and it's just kind of a mess, but it's, the nettle is there and I'm sure it will always be there. I don't think the forsythia or the blackberries could totally edge it out. <clears throat> they're all vying for space and they're all very competitive plants, but my nettle is already blooming. And when it's blooming, it has these little kind of clumps of balls that kind of hang down together um, from the top of the plant where the leaves meet the stem. And at that stage, once nettle is blooming, we don't want to harvest it anymore. 
um, until it goes to seed. And then once the flowers turn to seed, people will often harvest the seeds and either use it in like a herbal gamazio seasoning blend, or people will make tinctures with the seeds um, as kind of a energy tonic. But when the nettle is blooming, you just kind of let it go, or you can cut it down and let it regrow, but don't harvest it. It's thought that the nettle at that stage of the game um, has some constituents in it that can actually be irritating, ironically, to the kidneys. Um, even though nettle itself, um, especially in the earlier phases of its life, is a kidney tonic and very healing to the kidneys and supportive of the kidneys. And then finally, um, chive flowers are also blooming and chives are so easy to grow and are so pretty and they are, you know, they're mostly edible. I don't really think of them necessarily as medicinal. Surely they could be used similar to maybe you'd use onions. They are an allium. So again, that's a plant family that also has garlic and chives and onions in it and they are super fun to cook with um, to garnish with if you want that kind of oniony scallion type of flavor um, but the the flowers are these beautiful kind of papery purple flowers which make a great garnish as well very beautiful edible flower but a, a fun thing to do is to make a chive flower vinegar so it will turn this beautiful like pinkish purple color if you use a white vinegar so not not distilled white vinegar but a like a white wine vinegar or a champagne vinegar a vinegar or even maybe rice vinegar um, and you basically just harvest the chive flower blossoms and you can chop them up or you can even put them whole but you you get a stronger flavored vinegar if you chop them up and put them in a jar lightly pack a small jar with the chive flowers and then ideally when you especially since we're using fresh chive blossoms we're going to want to pasteurize our vinegar uh, so that it doesn't interact you know the the live microbes in the vinegar don't interact with the live microbes on the living plant and cause a crazy science experiment. So really what we want to do is do bring our vinegar up just to a quick boil and remove it from the heat. And you want to use like a Pyrex pan, pot or a ceramic lined pot because again, vinegar can react with metal. Uh, so just a quick pasteurization, although I will say that this is a debated thing, like summer bliss are like, why would you ever pasteurize vinegar? You want that mother, you want the living aspect of it. But honestly, like, that's fine. If you want that aspect of the vinegar, then just eat your vinegar or make your salad dressings with it. But if you start infusing plant, fresh plant material into the raw vinegar, um, you know, it's, you're going to reduce your shelf life and you're going to have more likelihood of strange scientific experiments happening in your jar. So 
pasteurize your vinegar, bring it back to room temperature, pour it over your chopped chive flowers in your jar, put a, um, a lid on it. And if your lid has any metal, like if you're using a canning jar lid or any sort of metal lid, you want to put a protective barrier, like a wax paper, parchment paper. Some people use saran wrap, something that is going to keep the vinegar from touching the metal lid because unless you're going to be using your vinegar up quickly that vinegar is going to interact and basically eat and destroy the metal lid and rust it and you'll end up with rust in your vinegar and that's just no good so if you have a food safe plastic lid or some sort of you, know, you can just put a square piece of wax, uh, unbleached wax paper and then put your lid on top of that and screw it on tight and let it sit out of the sun. The sun will totally bleach out the color. So you want to kind of let it sit in a dark place and in four weeks or more, you'll have this beautiful, beautiful pink purple um, vinegar that you can wow your guests with as when you put it on the table for people to dress their salads with and it will be a lovely flavor as well because it will taste kind of oniony garlicky vinegar so i hope that you're able to get outside and enjoy the plants that are growing around you that are growing in your garden and your yard and taking your peterson field guide out there and seeing what fun things you can learn about the green allies that are growing right out your very own back door. Whether you're in the city or the country, I guarantee you there are medicinal plants that are growing around you wherever you are. And if you're interested in learning about foraging backyard medicinal plants, making herbal remedies, um, etc., etc., all that fun stuff that is part and parcel of being a home herbalist, then check me out on Patreon, the Solidago Herb School um, on Patreon, which is a kind of a membership platform where you can pledge a monthly amount and their tiers, and then you get benefits for each um, pledge tier level when it's a monthly class and then the more in-depth um, it goes with the different tiers and then plus you get potential one-on-one -on -one time with me and I would love to um, get to know you and connect with you that way so check me out there check me out on my website uh, Facebook Instagram whatever all with the tag Solidago Herb School until next week, thanks for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty. Be well, let intuition guide you, and have fun with herbs.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.